Hi, I'm Rick Steves. We're heading east today on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll start out remembering a train ride you can no longer take, the venerable Orient Express from Paris to Istanbul, which has survived mostly in the imaginations of mystery writers, has been officially removed from the European train timetables. But in its heyday, it was quite a trip. Getting on in a den of spies, getting off in another den of spies, and in between going through the mysterious east where new borders were popping up all the time. Think about all the stories that the train could tell, having seen so much history. And we're getting inside Iranian culture with travel filmmaker Justine Shapiro. After spending a summer in Tehran with her six-year-old son, she learned that politeness and distance are sometimes two sides of the same coin. The Persian walls are not just what you might expect in terms of censorship or dress, but it's also very much in the nature of the Iranians. From the old train route to Istanbul to intrigue in modern Tehran. Come along as we experience the world together on Travel with Rick Steves. Last year at this time, we were talking about my experiences filming a public TV show in Iran what the Iranian culture entails, what the people are really like. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, filmmaker Justine Shapiro joins us to share what she found as a Jewish-American single mom living for a summer in Tehran with conservative Muslims as well as contemporary secular Iranians. Let's start with a tribute to a European travel icon that has come to an end. The train route known as the Orient Express is no longer running from France to Vienna and Istanbul. My lead editor and co-writer of my Eastern European guidebooks joins us to remember what the Orient Express meant for travelers venturing into the mysterious East, before the days of bullet trains and cheap flights. Since the 1880s, the exciting Orient Express has taken travelers from Paris in the West, through all the mystery of the Balkan Peninsula, and on to Istanbul, which back then was the Ottoman Empire, considered the old man of Europe. The train is just drenched in mystique and intrigue, in part because it was immortalized, of course, in literature and movies, most famous perhaps because this was the scene of the murder that inspired Agatha Christie's murder on the Orient Express. Well, this year is the first year since 1883 that the Orient Express has not shown up in the European train timetable. And we want to talk a little bit about the passing of the Orient Express. I'm joined by Cameron Hewitt. He's my co-author of a guidebook to Eastern Europe and my in-house expert on all things Balkan and, like me, a train aficionado. Cameron, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Great to be here. So, Cameron, what, what do you make of the, the ending of the Orient Express this year? Well, it, it marks the end of an era of rail travel across Europe. I mean... This is something that's been happening for a long time. Uh, There hasn't actually been a through train from Paris all the way to Istanbul since about the 1970s. But over time, as budget airlines are popping up and allowing to cover long distances cheaply and and bullet trains are replacing the old romantic night trains, it just sort of shows the passing of a vintage age of rail travel. So really the the old age when we used to dress up to go onto an airplane and now kids hop on an airplane to make that trip from Paris to Istanbul for 50 bucks or something. Exactly. I mean, imagine being in a train station your grubby vagabond walking past a train platform, a door opens of an elegant train car, a red carpet literally rolls out, someone sets up a podium for a little speech. This was the, the Orient Express in its glory days when, when rail travel was something exotic and luxurious and exciting. And we train travelers and we old backpackers sort of lament the passing of that day, I think. Although we don't complain about the ease of being able to step onto a bullet train and not show our passport at a border and not meet all sorts of scary characters at each crossing and customs booth and so on. Now, there's two different Orient Expresses. Explain that, because I think that confuses a lot of people. Well, the the term Orient Express can kind of be applied to any train trip from the west to the east, um, specifically from Paris to Istanbul is what it was best known for. But over the years, the actual route would change a lot. For a while, it went through Venice. At other times, it went through Vienna. During Nazi Germany, it actually skirted through Switzerland to the south to avoid going through Germany. Through the Cold War, of course, the route kept changing. The one thing that stayed the same was the name Orient Express, which meant this train from the west to the east. And there's also a luxury tour company called uh, Venice Simplon Orient Express. And they're actually still running. They'll actually still run luxurious, top-end, thousands of dollars for a couple-of-day trip across Europe in a a very elegant 1930s vintage night train. And that's a a highly advertised sort of tour experience. And it's a a plush, what, $2,000 for the one-week trip? Something like that. Actually, I I saw that it was $9,000 for the one time a year that they do the entire Orient Express route from Paris to Istanbul. It costs $9,000 per person. So this is like for people who are going to book on to Richard Branson's first trip to outer space or something like that. This is the ultimate train ride. It's the super luxury train ride for the nostalgic traveler who wishes they could go back to the 1930s. Yeah, creating that time warp to those elegant days of the 1930s. Me, 
And you, I think it means pulling out the seat and sleeping and hoping you don't get ripped off by the next morning. Exactly, exactly. And that's something that you get nostalgic about even as a vagabond traveler who, who would take the basic Orient Express where maybe you were sleeping in the aisle surrounded by, by chickens and peasants and this sort of thing. Now, what is it about the, the mystique of the Orient Express? Let's, let's think about that because, for one thing, the Balkan Peninsula, that's just steeped in intrigue anyways. Well, look at the name. Orient Express says it all. Orient is the east, so it's this mysterious eastern chunk of Europe. It can mean anything basically east of the Iron Curtain. Uh, the Balkan Peninsula, it went through a lot of the big cities of the, of the east, Belgrade, Budapest, Bucharest, um, Sofia. And during the war and after the war, World War II, Vienna was just a den of spies, wasn't it? Exactly. Um, if you think about it, both Vienna and Istanbul were kind of, after World War II, not really fully in the east, not fully in the west. They were both hotbeds of spies right after World War II. This was at a time when the Orient Express did run from Vienna to Istanbul. And yeah. imagine getting on in a den of spies, getting off in another den of spies, and in between going through the mysterious east where new borders were popping up all the time. They had to keep rerouting it through the Cold War because this border would close or that border would open. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're lamenting the passing of the Orient Express. Uh, this is the first year since the 1880s when your European Thomas Cook timetable doesn't have a departure heading from France all the way to the Orient, Istanbul, that's labeled the Orient Express. Actually, it is a little a bit of an overstatement to say from Paris to Istanbul because for a long time it hasn't been able to do that. And the most recent trip, what it just went from Strasbourg to... From Strasbourg, France, um, to only Vienna. to Vienna. And right. so every, every few years they'd have to inch back what was the Orient Express from Istanbul. It actually only ran to Istanbul until about 1977. And its most recent incarnation, it went from Paris to Vienna. Hardly the East, hardly the Orient, right. but at least it was east of Paris. And then <laughs> this is where uh, this new network of bullet trains around Europe is changing things. The TGV popped up, and suddenly the old rails that the Orient Express drove on couldn't follow the TGV all the way into Paris, so it had to stop or start at Strasbourg. I remember taking that ride from Paris to Vienna, or Paris to Istanbul, back in the 70s. As a matter of fact, every year I took it, basically, from Istanbul back to Europe. It's two days on that train, and I mean, you're on that train, you've got your produce that you picked up at the market before getting on that train that's supposed to last you for two days. Your feet are swelling up because you've been sitting for so long. You want to stretch out so badly, you open your youth hostel sleeping sack up and you lay on the floor. And when the peasants come on in the middle of the night, they seem to intentionally bounce their bags of potatoes and chickens on your head as they walk by you wondering, what's this, you know, hippie tourist doing on the floor of my train? Just an amazing thing. And when you hit the border, every time you hit a border, you get a new set of guards and a new set of customs officials and a new set of conductors. And every country is different. And you see these characters coming on with briefcases. And you wonder what's in that briefcase. And you see men coming on with overcoats. And you wish you could open up that overcoat and see what he's hiding under that. It probably wasn't that intriguing. But when you think of Agatha Christie and everything, your imagination goes wild. And it really contributed to quite an interesting travel experience. And that's the thing about the Orient Express. It has this, this rich history. Think about the contrast between that Cold War period that you took the train during. In the 1930s, which was sort of its glamorous heyday, a train ride of two days all the way across Europe was something really unthinkable. You'd step on a train in Paris. You'd basically sleep for two days through the entire length of Europe. You'd wake up in Istanbul. You'd step off the train, and you're at the Sirkeji train station right there in Istanbul. The Bosphorus Strait is right in front of you. There's ferries across the street from the train station that would take you across the strait, literally to Asia. So you get on a train in Paris and you end up across the Bosphorus Strait from Asia. Even today, when you come into Sirkeji Station in Istanbul, it is a thrill. It's an exotic wonderland. And you step off that train and you still got the the sandwich you uh, put together in Paris. You know, it's a little stale by now. But you step off and all of a sudden you've got all the wonders of Turkey. And back then it would have been the Ottoman Empire. That is part of the mystique. Another part of the mystique is just all the literature and the movies and so on that have stoked this interest. Because of this, this rich heritage and this rich history, you think it's, it's inspired so many artists and writers over the years. Agatha Christie, you've mentioned, is the most famous for sure. Um, but, you know, James Bond, for example, romanced a Russian spy on the Orient Express in, uh, from Russia with love. I was looking for her, and I never saw any beautiful Russian spies on, on the <laughs> I saw very sleazy conductors, all right? And then even in, in Bram Stoker's Dracula, Van Helsing went to capture Dracula to fight Dracula, took the Orient Express down all the way through, uh, through Bulgaria to be able to catch up to Dracula. And adding to the whole venerable grandeur and elegance of the thing, you have to have a fine hotel at the end of a great train ride. All over Europe, you see terminus hotels 
you know, the Orsay Gallery in Paris. It was a station, and it has a fancy terminus restaurant and hotel originally in it. And, of course, when you go from Paris, all these elegant, important people going all the way to Istanbul, there's got to be an appropriate hotel waiting for them. And at first, when they started running this train, there wasn't. Istanbul didn't have a hotel to the specifications of the the wealthy uh, diplomats and even royalty who would be taking the Orient Express from Paris. And so they actually built one. They custom-built a luxurious hotel called the Parapalace Hotel that was specifically designed to cater to the, the wealthy people who'd come into town on the Orient Express. Actually, Agatha Christie stayed there while writing her novel, and they're just renovating it right now. They're going to reopen it soon as a yet again another generation of a, of a great luxury hotel. And it's designed to welcome tourists to feel the mystique of those great old days. Well, when I was there a few years ago, you could actually go in, and uh, I don't even think you had to pay admission. You could just go poke yeah. around, and, and if you if you tip the bellhop, he'd show you Agatha Christie's room, which still has the, the bed she slept on and the desk she wrote at. And think of the people who have stayed there. Especially during those those glory days of the Orient Express, you had Jackie Kennedy, uh, Tito, the the dictator of Yugoslavia, Mata Hari, the Duke of Windsor, uh, Ataturk, of even course, Ataturk. The, the great the great Turkish president, uh, father of the Turkish nation. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're lamenting the passing of the Orient Express. And Cameron, I'm holding the Thomas Cook timetable, the last one where the Orient Express uh, actually had a part. And I see here uh, the train departed from Strasbourg at 2037, and it arrived in Vienna at 640 the next morning. And I think how that really is a sign of the times. Uh, Of course, there's a bullet train that goes from Paris to Strasbourg, so the train wouldn't leave from Paris anymore. And anybody who's going to go from Vienna to Istanbul these days is going to fly instead of taking that train across the long Baltics. But from 1883 until 2009, the Orient Express had a part in the lore of traveling in Europe, and today it's gone. What do you... Cameron, what sort of souvenir do you have for the rest of your traveling life when you think back on uh, the age of the Orient Express? Well, when you think of this this train that would cut right through the middle of Europe to all these these grand capitals, it gives you an appreciation for the fascinating cultural mosaic of Europe. Think about everything that a traveler would have seen getting on in Paris and getting off in Istanbul, the, the tremendous diversity that you see as you pass through each country. And think also about how far Europe came over the course of the 20th century. I mean, this is something that ran constant throughout the almost the entire 20th century and think about all the stories that the train could tell, having seen so much history. And a line that had to actually jockey itself around and dance around all the problems that festered through Europe in the last century, and how today, as Europe is united, the the amazing fact today is Turkey's trying to join the European Union, and you don't have to show a passport from one end of Europe to the other. Exactly. There's an irony that as Europe is getting smaller, it's in some ways getting harder to take a train through that part of Europe anymore. Like you said, it's it's even hard to find trains. You have to take the flights. And for me, my souvenir about the memories of the Orient Express is how it brought me from Paris to Istanbul, introducing me to Turkey and letting me gain an appreciation for that most exciting place where East meets West. Cameron Hewitt, thanks for joining us. And uh, I think all of us travelers will have fond memories of the Orient Express. Great. Thanks for having me. Up next, we keep heading east to Tehran. You may know Justine Shapiro from the Globe Trekker TV shows she's hosted. She joins us to share what she discovered about Iran by spending a summer there with her young son while filming a documentary. We're at 877-333-7425 as we take a fresh look at Iran from the inside, next on Travel with Rick Steves. I had the joy of spending a couple weeks in Tehran recently, making our public television story on Iran, and I'll never forget a woman walking across the street to me, thumping her finger on my chest and telling me we just don't want our children to be raised like Britney Spears. 
she was so afraid that her child, if the United States was able to change their government, would become a boy toy and a drug addict and a crass materialist. But I was a man on the street, and it was very tough for me to get inside of the domestic situation and learn what made these loving Iranian parents tick, and why were they so afraid. I'm joined by Justine Shapiro, who's a television host with Globe Trekker and has made a two Emmy Award-winning documentary called Promises about Palestinian and Israeli children living together in Jerusalem, the West Bank. Justine spent a summer in Tehran living with her son, Matteo, in three different households. And she's produced a documentary that will air sometime in the near future on PBS. Justine joins us to help us get inside an Iranian household. Justine, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Now, you had the opportunity with your son, Mateo, who was six years old at the time, to live in three different homes in Iran. How did those families contrast? How were they different? Well, it was an opportunity that we created. I met with a really wonderful woman named Marjane Mogimi, who is an Iranian-American producer. She went about a year in advance of our shoot and met with many, many families in Tehran from the middle class, looking for three families from diverse backgrounds. One thing I didn't know about Iran was that almost half the population is considered part of the educated middle class. And I thought that was very interesting because we so rarely see that demographic in any developing country. And I asked Marjane if she could try and find a family who was very religious and pro-government because there are many very religious people in Iran who are not necessarily pro-Ahmadinejad. And I asked her to find a single mom like myself, and I asked her to find a family that was more secular, more modern, more westernized. And she found many families, actually, who were interested in participating in this film. They really liked the premise of um, this sort of cross-cultural exchange between a mother and her son with their families. With Globe Trekker, I've traveled as a single woman backpacker. And when I meet people off the beaten track in the many countries I've been to, I'm received as a young woman, uh, part of this TV crew. And what I really loved about the prospect of making this film in Iran was that I was going to be received not as a journalist, not as a travel show host, but as a mom with my son. And I think that that's what the families there responded to as well. And of the many who were interested in participating, we chose three families. Mateo and I spent the summer there. We didn't live with the families. We had our own apartment, but we spent a lot of time with them. So how were you treated differently in the religious household compared to the secular household? I was so nervous to meet this religious family. First of all, the husband works for the Revolutionary Guards, which, as we now know, they've played such a prominent role since the June 12th protests. The Revolutionary Guards are a militia that supports the right wing of the government, or the leadership, let's say, supports the right wing of the government. And Dr. Tarabi works for the Revolutionary Guards, and he lives in an area on the east side of Tehran that is a subsidized uh, housing complex for employees of SEPA. What is SEPA? SEPA is the uh, Iranian nickname for Revolutionary Guards. Okay. And they are a militia that was formed by the Ayatollah Khomeini to protect the regime uh, as separate from the regular army. So they are very happy to live under a theocracy. Well, one, many people are saying that in some ways, you know, Ahmadinejad came from the Revolutionary Guards that's his base. And many people say, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But some people say that, in effect, what happened in June was a kind of military coup and that the Revolutionary Guards have, in effect, taken over. So this is the election fraud uh, episode that we just went through, you're talking about. That's right. That's right. And during the years that Ahmadinejad was in power, he named many Revolutionary Guards to posts in governments throughout Iran. In, in other words, some people have a hunch that Ahmadinejad infiltrated the country with his people, people in the Revolutionary Guard that would support him if he was going to go head-on-head with the religious leaders and establish what you're calling a military takeover of the country. There's so much that's being written right now about what's going on in Iran, and the fact is that nobody knows. Nobody knows what's really going on. There are, and a lot of experts have lots of theories. One of them is 
a question about to what degree is the Revolutionary Guard in control and to what degree is the supreme leader in control. And clearly that leadership is fragmented. It's not clear who's really on top. Okay. When Marjane, my producer, said that our religious family was going to be a Revolutionary Guard family, the first thing I asked Marjane was, do they know I'm American? And she said, yes. And I said, do they know that I'm Jewish? And she said, no. And I said, well, should I tell them? And she said, no. And the strange thing was, this was the family I became closest to. I don't Hmm. know why, but the mother, Mrs. Tarabi, she and I, it's hard to say why, there was an instant connection between us, a mutual curiosity, certainly. Did she have children? She has two children, Elahe, who at the time was 10, and Hura, who had just turned one. Hmm. Justine, I understand in Iran, Baha'is are discriminated against because their prophet came after Muhammad. Uh, Christians and Jews are okay because they're worshiping guys that came before Muhammad, who came, what, in the year 600 or 700. You're Jewish. How did that uh, impact your visit? A lot of people were really concerned about the fact that I was going there not only as an American, not only as a woman, but also as a Jewish person. I found that very, very interesting. I was really nervous to tell the religious family who were in the film that I was Jewish. And uh, I realized that I'm extremely brainwashed myself, even with all the travels that I've done, you know, with this idea that Muslims hate Jews. And as you say, Jews are very much accepted part of the population in Iran. From everyone I have spoken to who actually lives as a Jew in Tehran, who has family who are Jewish in Tehran, they seem to be living just fine. And they have their own schools and their own shops and their own kosher bakeries and butcheries. If they want to leave, they can leave. And when they do leave, it seems that they're leaving for economic reasons, not for any reasons of persecution. You know, Justine, you just said something that is so powerful to me. It's that people like you and me, professional travel writers and TV producers, are supposed to be savvier. And and when we travel, we realize the impact of our own media on us. In so many cases, I felt like, wow, I'm just as ethnocentric and, and afraid as the people I'm not supposed to be like. And you just mentioned you were raised thinking Muslims hate Jews. And you go over there and you realize it's not the case. You know, Rick, I feel like that so often... It blows my mind. You know, when I was in Israel and Palestine meeting with young Palestinian and Israeli kids and hearing them tell me how much they hated each other, that's when I decided to make the film Promises because this was during the years of Oslo and everybody was talking about peace coming to the Middle East. And I thought, my gosh, if I'm blown away by the fact that these kids hate each other and are virulent about it, maybe that will be impressive for an audience. And when I decided to make this film in Iran, I met with a young Iranian woman who told me about how affectionate her grandfather was with her and how affectionate all the men in her family were. And when she told me that, I thought, oh, my God, I have to make a film about Iran because I have never pictured an Iranian man as affectionate. (laughs) Well, that's the value of travel. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Justine Shapiro. Justine has produced a documentary for public television called My Summer in Tehran. Her website is promisesfilms.com. Justine spent the summer with her son, Mateo, six-year-old son, in three different households. And Justine, when you were having this experience, I'm curious about the situation of women in Iran. A lot of people think Iranian women are put down and kept down, but somebody who maybe comes from the religious family that you stayed with would see it as a mark of respect for women and modesty for women. I do agree with you. I think that a lot of Americans look at hijab and make very quick judgments that hijab means oppression and that it means a denial of rights to women. What I found in Iran is that women who are concerned with rights are not really talking so much about hijab. They're talking about much more fundamental issues, legal issues, issues around the fact that their testimony is half the weight of a man's testimony in court, Mm. Uh, the fact that they have limited custody rights, so they have limited rights around divorce, that there are certain positions that they can't hold, Um, they can't be judges. Hijab isn't so much an issue. And in fact, a lot of women that I spoke to who weren't religious They're aware that in America, there's a lot of judgment about hijab, and they'll say things like, you know, you judge our hijab, but in your country, you use half-naked women to sell power tools. 
Yeah, I mean, think about the fundamentalist uh, Iranian woman looking at an American treatment of women, and you've got these American babes at a car show on a revolving platform selling a hot rod in a, in a miniskirt. Uh, they look at that as a mark of disrespect for women, I would think. Not even religious Iranian women look at that as mm -hmm. a fundamental display of disrespect. I think a lot of women in general everywhere <laughs> look at the way women are used as sex objects to sell all manner of consumer products as a total perversity. Um, we've just sort of come to accept it, and we have come to equate that with a certain kind of liberation and freedom and see, look, in America, you can dress as you want and mm -hmm. be who you want. But now in Iran, women can dress as they want and be who they want when they're in their domestic world. Is that right? Behind closed doors. And that's what's so fascinating about Tehran is the Persian wall. Let's talk about um, that. Yeah. Tell me more. What is it like behind, because you got to go behind that wall. Not many travelers do. Well, there are all kinds of veils in Iran. There are the literal veils, the hijab and the walls and the doors. But then, you know, Iranian people also have a very veiled nature. You know, I had spent quite a lot of time in Palestine and in Israel, and I found the people there to be extraordinarily articulate and eager to share their opinions and extremely informal. I've worked in many countries and I would say that Iran is one of the more difficult countries to make a documentary film, not so much because of the sense of oppression or censorship from the government, but because Iranian people themselves are really guarded and they're formal. For example, when I was making the film Promises with Palestinian and Israeli families, there was never an issue about whether or not our crew could show up at their house at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning to shoot sort of a fly-on-the-wall cinema verite scene of people sleeping and waking up and what the morning rituals are, because I'm very interested in that sort of domesticity and that sense of ordinary daily life in parts of the world that we mostly understand through political headlines. And so that's something I like to do a lot. I like to be, you know, in the home when very ordinary things are happening. Well, every person in Iran, whenever I asked if we could show up early in the morning and shoot their morning rituals, you know, all of them said, well, it's probably better if you come at about 12, once we've had a shower and cleaned the house and had some breakfast. And they're very protective about, you know, how they appear. Obviously, when you talk to Iranians on camera about politics, they will be guarded. But even if you talk to Iranians on camera about personal things, uh, they're also quite guarded. So the Persian walls are not just what you might expect in terms of censorship or dress, but it's also very much in the nature of the Iranians. So when you go behind the Persian wall, you know, most of the women are wearing tank tops. It's hot, especially, you know, in the summer, it's really hot there. And, you know, Iranian women really do pay quite a lot of attention to their appearance. They tend to be quite slim and small-boned, and they tend to wear really attractive clothing underneath their manteau or underneath their chador. Um, there's a sensuality in Iran. So there's a huge difference between, you know, going into these family homes with Mateo and hanging out, and then I take the camera out the bag, and, you know, on went the manteau or on went the chador, and you cannot see what I saw. And that was a really interesting and frustrating part of making the documentary for me, because what I could see, you couldn't see. That was a frustration for us, too. We went into a home in Shiraz, and uh, taking our camera in, we took in with it the public situation, and everybody had to be more modest and, and a little bit uptight. That's right. That's right. Well, one of the ways we tried to get around that is we went into a shopping mall, as you did, mm -hmm. and showed some of the clothes that people wear when they are behind closed doors. Yeah. But again, what's so interesting about the Iranian culture is that I'm sure you came into contact with this, Rick. There's the custom of tarof, which is this excessive display of politeness right. where you never say no. You never hear Iranians use the word no. And they won't accept anything unless you offer it to them many, many, many times. And this kind of indirectness and politeness is also a kind of a Persian wall. Make a case for the way women are treated in Iran from a religious Iranian perspective. From the point of view of a religious perspective? 
How can people keep their women covered up, not let them show their shape of their body or anything below their neck and keep their hair covered? And how can women not be allowed to go to the soccer stadium because people are going to be cussing? How can there be a car on the subway just for women? Uh, I think a lot of Americans look at that and they think that it's a mark of disrespect and keeping women down in Iran. But I know Iranians would defend it. I think it's really interesting because in the West, we look at the covering or what what's called hijab, which I think actually means more modesty. And we have a lot of opinions and judgments about hijab because it's the most visually obvious, different thing from our own society. However, being in Tehran, I don't know what you experienced when you were there, Rick, but I found that hijab wasn't the issue. The truth about the hijab is that it is a symbol. And like all symbols, the meaning of hijab shifts depending on what time in history we're talking about. The hijab, when it's enforced in European countries, when they enforce the rule that women are not supposed to wear hijab, women will react by wearing the hijab as a way of saying to the imperialists, you can't tell us what to do. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking my summer in Tehran with Justine Shapiro, who went to Tehran, spent uh, summer there with her six-year-old son, Mateo, stayed in three different households and learned a lot, putting that into a, a special documentary film that'll be out shortly on public television. To give you a little flavor of how much Iranians treasure the poetry of their 13th century poets, such as Rumi and Sadi, here's a short clip we recorded in Shiraz when I was filming my TV special about Iran. It's from a guard at the tomb of the poet Sadi. He's reciting from memory one of Sadi's poems. The words remind visitors to his tomb that there is no reason for sadness, for we all come from the dust and go back to the dust. الا ای که بر خاک ما بگذری به خاک عزیزان که یادآوری که گر خاک شد سعدی او را چه غم که در زندگی خاک بوده است هم به بیچارگی تن فراخاک داد وگر گرد عالم برآمد چو باد بسی بر نیامد که خاکش بخورد دگر باده بادش به عالم ببرد بزرگی که خود را به خوردیش مرد به دنیا و عقبا بزرگی ببرد تا انگه شوی پیش مردم عزیز که مر خیشتن را نگیری به چیز از این خاکدان بنده ای پاک شد که در پای کمتر کسی خاک شد نگر تا گلستان معنیش کفت در او هیچ بلبل چون این خوش نگفت عجب گربه میرد چون این بلبلی که بر استخانش نروید گلی We'll compare notes with filmmaker Justine Shapiro about some of the everyday elements of life in Tehran. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. My name is Human Maj, and I like to travel with Rick Steves. In Farsi, that would be, Esfaman Human Majdas, Mandustaram Ba'aghay Rick Steves, Mosafarat Pokoram. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Justine Shapiro. She's a television host and international documentary filmmaker. Her latest film is My Summer in Tehran, scheduled to be out on public television. Her website, promisesfilms.com. Justine, uh, I'm curious for your take from the domestic end of things, the Iranian living situation. How internet savvy were the people you met? The Persian language is, I believe, the fourth most popular blogging language on the internet. Now, there are only 70 million people living in Iran. Hmm. So think about that. So they're they are really an extremely, yeah. Yes, Iranians are extremely internet savvy. And in every home we went to, there was internet connection and people on the computer. Is For young people, is it their window on the West? Well, for young people, it's not only their window on the West, but it's the way for them to communicate with each other. Although the government has really started to crack down on... Facebook pages and uh, hacking people's emails. But can an Iranian kid cruise the Internet and go to all the sites we can go to? 
for example, you can't go to YouTube, and there's certain sites you can't go to. But I was surprised when I was there; I could very easily access most of the major newspapers. Yeah. But there's certain words that are filtered. However, Iranians are so internet savvy that they have proxies, and they get around all of those firewalls, and they get everything. Okay, it's a dry country. I've never been in a country that was as alcohol-free as Iran. I understand at home, if you have a cell phone and you can get delivery, you can have drugs, sex, and booze if you want it. What was your take on that? Well, I think it's to be expected in a society where there's so much suppression in the exterior environments. I mean, there are no clubs, there are no bars. You know, you can't drink at the restaurants. Everything happens behind closed doors, and there's a huge drug problem in Iran. Although Iran deals with their drug addicts in a much more enlightened way than I think we do in this country. What do you mean by that? It's not a criminal offense to be a drug user. Mm-hmm. It's a criminal offense to be a drug seller. Mm-hmm. But users um, have access to very good rehabilitation clinics. Is there a lot of drinking, a lot of alcohol in the privacy of your own home? You know, I I spent time in Tehran and I spent time with the people I spent time with, but alcohol is very easy to get. I met a lot of Iranians who make their own wine, okay. who make their own arak, and the Christian Armenians are allowed to have wine ah, for their religion, okay. and so they sell wine to the Muslims. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Justine Shapiro, who had a summer in Tehran, and she took her six-year-old son to go along, stayed in three different family homes. Julia's on the phone in Round Rock, Texas. Julia. Yes, as a, um American woman who had the opportunity to um, live with both a modern and a more religious family in Iran, um, did you find that um, there was any difference in the way you were treated or viewed by the various family members? As an American? Well, as an American or as a woman, and I was wondering if you have a son and if... Uh, you noticed a difference in the way he was treated versus you as a woman by the family members of both families. Well, Iranians are extraordinarily family-oriented, and they are extremely children-oriented. And Mateo's had his cheeks pinched, you know, 17 times a day, and people just would go up to him and kiss him and hug him. Um, There wasn't any of that sort of American phobia of personal space with kids. So they were really affectionate with Mateo. I think that Iranians really respect family and they really respect mother. And as a woman, as a woman film director, as a mother, I never felt that I was discriminated against or judged or put down. And that's partly because the cinema industry in Iran is one of the most important cinema industries in the world. Every year there are Iranian films in all the major film festivals. And a lot of prominent and important Iranian film directors are women. So from the point of view of being there as a woman director, I didn't feel uh, that I was being treated as less than. And as a mother, I felt that people respected the fact that I was a mother and that I was there with my child. As an American, Iranians are extremely curious about Americans, and they make a very clear distinction between the people and government. I never felt that they equated me with the Bush administration. Most of them were extremely vocal about how much they despised the Bush administration, but they made an absolute distinction between the American people and the government. I felt incredibly welcomed in Iran. Julia, thanks for your call. Now, TV for me was interesting because I would be in my hotel room and I'd go into the upper dials in the TV station and I'd have live Mecca and I'd have ambience to pray by just beautiful little babbling streams with gauzy kind of focus and beautiful sunsets rather than a shopping channel. Uh, in other words, you really felt the power of the uh, theocracy on the, on, the, on the programming. What was your take with TV in Iran? Well, the estimate is that something like 40% of Iranians have access to satellite TV. Okay, so I in my hotel room, I had state-run television, but if you were at home and you had any money, you'd get a satellite so you didn't have to watch... Um, you know, babbling brooks to pray by. Oh, it's extraordinary. I mean, Iranians are watching satellite TV. They have the same cultural context that that we have. They can talk about the same films and the same TV shows. What was a big topic of conversation? Were there any American TV serials that were, uh, like, everybody talked about at work? Uh, Iranians are huge soccer fans. 
-hmm. Huge soccer fans. I mean, every league game plays every single night. I mean, my editor would come home from the edit at, we'd, we'd work from 11 in the morning to midnight. That was sort of Iranian hours. He'd get home at midnight. His wife would serve him dinner. He'd be up till three in the morning catching up on all the soccer games. Wow. And Iranians love news. They publish over, I don't know, something like 50 newspapers a day, albeit there is censorship, uh, but they are news hungry. And so they are watching BBC and CNN and Al Jazeera, and they talk a lot about what's going on in the world. They're very conscious of what's going on in the world. In regards to news, in our country, we have sort of two different zones. We've got the people who love PBS News and public radio, and we've got the Fox News crowd. Is there that kind of dichotomy in the Iranian society as far as news and broadcast news goes? I think that the way that dichotomy breaks down is that there are many Iranians who believe their television, believe the well, first of all, the television in Iran is controlled directly by the Supreme Leader's office. So, for example, during the elections, the Supreme Leader can decide who gets to go on television and who doesn't. Mm. That's why you didn't see anybody campaigning on TV until two weeks before the election. You never saw mm. Khatami or Musavi or Karubi until two weeks before the election when they had the debate. So the fact that the Supreme Leader's office controls the television says a lot about what's on the television. And when you ask the question about what population is going for what kind of television, there are a lot of Iranians who really believe everything that they see on TV in the way that a lot of Americans believe everything they see on TV. So in other words, there's a, there's a less sophisticated majority that just buys everything their government puts to them that's uh, masquerading as news? There's a less sophisticated population, and it's hard to say if they're the majority or the minority. Right. I think that's one of the big questions that's come out of uh, the June 12th protests. Okay, another topic, Kleenex on the table. Did you notice how they have boxes of Kleenex on the table? I have a scene in my film about the Kleenex on the table. What's with that? Um, <laughs> well, I think, you know, in Iran, when you go to someone's house, they have Kleenex on the table, and that's what you're supposed to use for your napkin. And sometimes there'll even be a very nice cloth napkin at your plate, but there'll also be a box of Kleenex, and invariably everybody uses the box of Kleenex. That's because Iranians don't want to make work for their hosts. And ah, again, that's part of tarof. That's, that's, that's tarof. an extension that's of tarof. Great. What about nose jobs? I was told there's more nose jobs per capita in Iran than any other country. I got there, and sure enough, every hundred yards I saw a woman with, with a white Band-Aid on her nose recovering from a cosmetic nose job. Iranians are proud of their nose jobs. It's a sign of affluence. Even men will wear bandages on their nose even when they haven't had nose jobs. Really? Just to yeah. fake that they're, they care about how they look and they've spent some money making their face look better? Yeah. There's no shame in beauty in Iran. When, when you really just have your face to show the world, there's no shame in doing what you need to do to make it the best that it can be. What's your take on death to America? Why do they say that? Who says that? Do they mean it? You know, I've met so many Iranians who grew up in Iran, you know, who had to, with the rest of the kids in the school, shout, death to America, death to America. And no, I don't think they meant it at all. It was just something that you did, hmm. um, sort of by rote. There was no real passion in it. And, it. and it's interesting, actually, when you look at footage of the protest movements and the movements around the revolution in 1979, those were really passionate movements. And when you look at the movement around June 12th, those are really passionate movements. I mean, you can tell, looking at the population, these people are impassioned, they're inspired, they're fearless, they're angry, they're emotional, and in some ways they're willing to risk their lives. But usually what we see about Iranians when they're burning the American flag or saying death to America, in other words, at any of those demonstrations that happen every week at the British embassy, these are Basiji guys who are paid to go and stand in front of the British embassy and they're given 10 bucks or something and that's what they do that morning. And somebody painted their banners for them in English for the Western press. Sure. And it's hmm. a game. You know, the BBC goes out there with their cameras and the BBC camera people know that these are besieges who've been paid to come and do these demonstrations. And it's a farce. 
I think it's quite amazing that they continue to shoot those demonstrations in front of the British embassy when they know that it's really just a game. I think it's quite amazing that Americans watch TV and they don't understand these posters have been handed out and these people have been bussed in to make it look like a, a, a groundswell of support. It happens in our country and across the sea. What about crossing the street? When I was crossing the street, they said, now we're going to Chechnya. They actually called it going to Chechnya when you crossed the street. It was so chaotic on the streets, but people mix it up with the cars and the motorcycles as if they belong in the middle of an eight-lane highway. It's amazing. In fact, that was one of my favorite shots in your shows, Rick, was this extraordinary overhead shot you had of the traffic and the cars all going in opposite directions. It was a great shot. You could really see the chaos. I've never been in a country where people drive backwards on the freeway or just pull over willy-nilly in the middle of a freeway to <laughs> stop and get something out of the back of the car. I mean, it's it's completely insane. And it just, people take it in stride. I mean, nobody's honking at them like, you idiot, that's what you do when you need to stop. You just pull over. Or eight lanes of traffic coming together with no stop sign. And what's so extraordinary is that it's in such sharp contrast to the style that Iranians display when you meet with them individually because they're so polite. <laughs> and, you know... <laughs> It's such, it's such a contrast. It's a, it's a land of, of paradox in so many ways. What about going to the mall and seeing kids um, dressing naughty? Well, they don't dress too naughty at the mall. I mean, when I was there in 2007, that was the beginning of the crackdown on the dress code. And, so there's modesty um, police actually roaming around making sure the girls are not tightening up the, the waist belt to show the shape of their body? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're called the morality police. They're part of right. Airshad. And yes, they drive around in vans, and they spend a lot of time in northern Tehran, uh, which is where their more middle-class and affluent Iranians live. Right. And this happened a lot in 2007. There, there was a big deal. There were a lot of crackdowns on the dress code. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Justine Shapiro. Justine has produced a television documentary called My Summer in Tehran, where she and her six-year-old son, Mateo, lived in three different households. It'll be airing on public television. Justine's website is promisesfilms.com. Justine, when you were in Iran, what was the impact of the embargo? How did you see that impacting the people? Because the United States has had an economic embargo on Iran for 25 years now, I think, and uh, it has caused this society to be pretty much a cash society rather than a credit card society. Yeah, I mean, I think that the big, big issue in Iran, the thing that people really talk about is the economy. People don't really talk about, well, they don't talk about Israel. They don't talk much about the nuclear issue. They're really talking about how the economy in Iran is in absolute shambles. I mean, the unofficial inflation in Iran is something like 25%. And if you spend any time in Tehran, you're going to be in lots of taxis with lots of people who went through university who cannot get a job. Hmm. Um, so the economy is a huge issue there, but it's really hard to say to what degree that has to do with the sanctions and what degree that has to do with the incompetence of the Ahmadinejad government. A lot of Iranians will say that that is the biggest problem with the Ahmadinejad government is not even so much the so-called, you know, oppression or censorship, but their incompetence in terms of the economy. Well, when you're sitting on oil like that and we have a theocracy that spends all of its billboards uh, pushing sort of uh, religious and political propaganda rather than uh, getting people to buy and sell, it just seems like the uh, economy is going to be challenged. You know, it's really interesting when I would, I, I talked a lot to the taxi drivers there and I found them extremely willing to talk about politics, not so much when I had the camera on, but certainly when the camera was off. And, you know, I would ask the taxi drivers, you know, what do you think about the nuclear situation and Iran's right to a nuclear program? And they would say, we don't need nuclear programs. We need refineries. We're sending our oil out to be refined, you know. Oh, that's, a, uh, that's a savvy answer. They would also say, you know, we're not worried about sanctions. We're not worried about a war. If the U.S. really wanted to put us out of business, they'd stop buying gas, but they're not going to do that. <laughs> Justine, you spent a summer in Iran with your six-year-old son, Mateo. As a parent, how do you look back on it? What kind of impact do you think this had on Mateo, and uh, how will he look at Iran differently in the future? One of the things I find so astonishing about Iran is that, you know, more than half the population is under 30 years of age. And it has the highest brain drain in the world. Every year, 150 to 180,000 Iranians leave Iran. And I can't really imagine raising my son in a country where he knows and I know that the idea is that one day he'll leave. Hmm. Um, I think that the experience in Iran, 
certainly was profound for Mateo. I have absolutely no idea how it will play out as he grows up. Uh, but, you know, when I ask Mateo questions like, where do you think you'll live when you're a big boy? He'll say, oh, Brazil, Mexico, France, England. He's really interested in the rest of the world. And he doesn't fear the world. He looks upon it with, with wonder. And I really appreciate that because I think that so many Americans, what they know of the world is what they know really simply from the nightly news. And if that's all you know about the rest of the world, you are going to live in fear of the world and in fear of others. So I'm, I'm really grateful that uh, my work has been able to include Matteo in seeing that we really are all part of the same, the same small planet. And to raise a child with that awareness is a beautiful challenge and uh, role for a parent. Justine Sapiro, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Good luck with your work. Thank you. Tell us how you've been inspired in your travels in the form of an original haiku poem. The radio section of our website at ricksteves.com has details on how to send us your submissions. Here are some recent examples of what listeners have sent us. Michael Richardson from Denver sent us several haiku he wrote about his trip to Venice. Here's a couple of them. Early morning rain, wet sheen on the cobblestones, a slippery stroll. Dark-eyed Italian shows us her cheat bella. We hang on each word. High tide floods the square, but music and dance go on. The night is magic. And birthday in Venice, Prosecco in St. Mark's Square, makes me grow younger. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Eastern Europe and beyond. On Rick's website, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To prepare for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.